Seb. We are here another week for another of our podcasts, the Circular Economy Show podcast. And today we are going to be discussing how are big companies achieving their circular economy ambitions. And specifically, we're diving into the topic of becoming a regenerative business. And we're also going to hear something related to becoming like nature positive. Is that such a thing? That's right, Lara. Nice. Um, I'm wondering, maybe we should recap on what we discovered last week as well for our audience. Um, last week and the week before that, actually, we have been covering a few conversations that we've had around how to apply circular design in the fashion industry and also the role that creatives have uh, in the industry to make, uh, let's say, the ambitions and steps towards a circular economy possible. And this week, we are going to go to Glasgow again, right, Seb? Yep, so make sure you tune in every single week to this podcast. Where we're talking to the leaders and practitioners who are driving this transition to a circular economy forward. Um, and yes, we are going to go back to Glasgow, COP26 in November. I had the luck, the fortune, to spend a couple of days up there speaking to people who are trying to make the connection between the circular economy and what it can offer to help mitigate the climate crisis. And specifically in this podcast, there's two conversations that we're sharing, one with Jim Andrew from PepsiCo and one from Carrie Denniston from Walmart. Both of these organizations have made this statement about becoming regenerative or nature positive in some way. And how how was your feeling being there and talking to these big businesses? Because I guess they they are also seen in a way as big players still in the in the linear economy. Did you have this sense that things are changing? I don't know if I took that sense away specifically from COP, although it's viewed at this kind of moment where organizations are starting to raise the ambition level. What I do think very clearly is that These big players, of course, they're a massive part of the problem today. Um, in fact, you could say we're all somewhere in some way part of the problem. The potential of them shifting is that they can be a big part of the solution. So, of course, we want to hear about their ambitions. We want to challenge them on how they're tracking those ambitions and how they're doing against those ambitions. But they're a key part of the conversation. Well, then, Seb, without further ado, let's move to our first conversation with Carrie Denniston, who is the Senior Director of Sustainability at Walmart.org. And in this conversation that you had with her, you cover things like what attracted Carrie to become part of Walmart and to work specifically on this topic of you know, being regenerative and having a positive impact as part of a big business, the connections they are making between circular economy, um, climate change, their ambitions on climate change, and also in terms of biodiversity and becoming, as we said, uh, nature positive, and also the role of innovation in this, in this space. So we're going to hear a little bit more about this in a second. Seb, do you want to say something? And you'll also hear me directly ask her the question that you just asked me, which is people might go into a store like Walmart and say, how can this ever be part of the circular economy? Then let's hear more from Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us in the Circular Economy Cafe here at the New York Times Climate Hub um, in Glasgow at COP26. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. So you work at Walmart. What's your kind of background and story? 
Yeah, thank you for having me. It's so great to be here, and it's so, it's so great to be in the energy of this place as well. Um, so I am with Walmart.org, and my role today is I help to really think about our philanthropic efforts around sustainability, climate, waste, nature, and people in supply chains. Um, but I didn't start out in corporate by any means. I grew up in the nonprofit sector, but the thread through all of it has been, I really want to solve big problems, but the ones that are important, and they're important for the things that connect all of us on a day-to-day basis. Great. So what, and what kind of attracted you to then work for an organization like Walmart, I suppose? Opportunity for impact. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been really, really an interesting journey because I've worked in a number of different sectors, nonprofit sector, public sector, and I had never really considered the power of the private sector. But clearly market-led solutions are a huge part of the unlock for how we're going to make progress on some of these issues. So the, the chance to be able to do that with a company like Walmart, who has been on on a sustainability journey for such a long time um, was a hugely exciting opportunity for me. And, I mean, one of the big things that Walmart is saying currently and and saying specifically in certain contexts in and around uh, this event is that we want to become a regenerative company. What does that mean? It's such a big word, right? (laughs) We have this conversation, like, how do I explain this to my mom, right? (laughs) Who really does care about these issues but would never say... Is this regenerative? Um, And what it really means when we talk about it is that in the moment of decision, in the moment of when we're creating strategy, we're putting humanity and nature into those decisions and at the center of them. And so it, it needs to show up in everything that we do. Now, that's still a really big concept. You know, what does that truly mean to in a purchasing decision in, in the moment where we're thinking about our operations, we're thinking about um, economics, right? These are huge, huge concepts. So I boil it down to things like an example of something that we just announced. So we're, we're working on tuna. And when we're making that buying decision, we're saying, can we do this in a way where the investments that are going into purchasing this tuna are also going into restoration, to conservation, and to the livelihoods of the people in this community? So it's almost looking at your entire product portfolio and saying, how does that become nature positive and net positive, which is a big task, right? And I guess that leads to my next question, which is, what you know, we're at COP26, Obviously, Walmart has circular economy ambitions, you have climate ambitions, you have your regenerative ambitions. What's the kind of thread or connection between these things? Yeah, these are such interconnected systems, right? Everything comes from somewhere. And in those places, the natural resources, the impact of climate, and the impact on people's day-to-day lives are so intertwined, right? Every, every product is someone's livelihood. Every, every resource that, get, that gets turned into something came from nature. So there's really no way actually to not connect them. And I think we've been missing the conversation for so long by not really thinking in this more robust way. Um, so for us, at the core of all of that is if we put economics, environment, and people, then you, you really get to different sets of solutions and different sets of ideas. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about innovation. So in this space, actually, we have some of our kind of um, hypothetical food products that are based on um, a a paper we published earlier this year, the the big food redesign. Um, How crucial is, I mean, again, Walmart 
goes beyond just food in terms of your product portfolio, but how crucial is the notion of innovation, especially in the food space, over the next year, three years, five years? It's really crucial. We already know how to do the things that we've tried, right? (laughs) So innovation absolutely has to be a part of it. And I, I think when we break down innovation, innovation to do what becomes a really interesting question. And I think a lot of the work that you all have done has been so helpful because it's not just innovation in the materials. Uh, you know, we're talking about food in this case, but inputs or um, if we're talking about product design, that gets us part of the solution. Design gets us part of the solution. Logistics gets us part of the solution. Behavior change gets us part of the solution. But it's the connection points and the intersections between those. And so that's what I think is really exciting about the pace of innovation that we're at now and why it's so critical that we are trying things along every one of those points because they'll come at different paces and they'll act on each other. Um, So we can innovate in how food waste could be turned into new products. We can innovate into, as it's coming off the field, how we reduce loss. All of those things will have impact on the inputs that go in creating that in the first place. But that whole system has to work together, including the end person knowing what to do and how they can contribute to making that a more circular economy. It's it's quite interesting. um, Our circular design team would always say, you know, there's a notion of kind of zooming in and zooming out, the ability to zoom into specific parts of the system and zoom out and understand the, the whole perspective. And it was true, every time we kind of look into one of these systems, what we kind of find is that there's a lot of um, kind of vertical innovation, like Mm -hmm. in particular parts of the chain, great on recycling systems, for instance, or great in terms of designer things. But there's not a lot of system innovation, which is is a challenge, even for a company with the reach and impact of Walmart to accomplish on its own. Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and because the kinds of solutions I think we're all trying to get to are the ones that require scale. You know, it's it's sort of a classic problem of, I've seen amazing innovations in individual products, but because we can't adapt an entire consumer base to really be excited about them, they don't get the kind of scale that they deserve. And, and those kinds of things really take us more to that system level approach. The infrastructure that can allow those innovations to really live into their promise. Some people um, who are watching this will have been in a warm-up before. Some of them may not have been if they're not in yep. the right geography. They should go. <laughs> <laughs> and when they walk through the aisles, they may look at the amazing array of products and they probably will be forgiven for thinking, well, this is actually a company that has massively thrived and succeeded in a linear economy, like just the range of products, the pace of innovation. Um, what you know, is, and, and they may find, they may challenge and say... How is that ever going to become regenerative? How can that ever become part of a circular economy? What do you say to them? Yeah. So Walmart was really built on this idea of democratizing access to to products. You know, that was sort of the core tenet of how the company was built. And so it wasn't necessarily built on linear, though that was the model, I think, that retail broadly has been built on, but with this idea of how do we help people get access to the things that they want. I think that will be true and continue to be true in a circular system as well. And part of what I think is interesting and exciting is that that is already shifting and changing. You know, so if folks walk down an aisle in a Walmart today, they might see a whole array of products and not even realize that circularity has built in 
to the design. So I think of uh, one example. Um, so if you walked into the pet aisle, you would see these really adorable pet beds. <laughs> they're very cute, um, but they're made out of hard to recycle mattresses, right? So you don't necessarily know that the product was built in a way of trying to build circularity into the design, um, but it's there and it's on offer. If you went into apparel, you would see the, that our private brand um, apparel is all trying to be built with more recycled content um, and created with that. You would see that in all kinds of aspects of the business. So there are a lot of products actually that are being built in material design, you know, through that whole spectrum with circularity in mind. We just don't necessarily always talk about it. And I think that's a huge opportunity is to be able to have that visibility in the conversation. I also um, think it's really important that we're trying out things that are built on an entirely different system. You know, reuse models, resale models. Um, we've started to work with organizations like ThreadUp, which is really exciting, so that we can try to test out how do we just do this entirely differently and offer a whole array of choices for customers to be able to participate and, and be able to actually experience these kinds of products and services. Is that the value of also of partly being at events like this where, because in some ways at the moment, the rules of the game are in such a way that they reward certain behaviours or certain outcomes more than others. And moments like this in time are trying to signal a kind of different direction for the whole system, maybe changing fundamentally what it is good to do, or at least what you are not being punished for. Yeah, and what, what there's opportunity and appetite to experiment with. You know, I think there's always going to be challenges with getting adoption in, in the beginning. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying. It doesn't mean that new ideas shouldn't come in and that we can't experiment with seeing how could we, how could we help the customer it to make this a better part of their, their life, you know, and to be able to actually build it into their everyday experience. Final question for me, Kerry, is, uh, you know, like this is another moment in time um, a number of things will come out of these two weeks, hopefully. Um, where does the ambition level need to be lifted from this point onwards as we look towards 2025, as we look towards 2030? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I think we were just starting to touch on it a little bit. We've, as a collective community, done so well with building incremental steps you know, how, do, how do we set big goals for where we want to be and set ambitions and have numeric targets for them? And that's actually very important. You know, progress along that linear direction is something that does need to happen. We need to parallel path that with completely different what-if statements <laughs> that can help us go to the whiteboard and say, you know, what if we just did it a completely different way? And, you know, an example, it, we work with amazing merchants who think about reducing packaging all the time. And I, I, there's a story of a merchant I've, I've spoken with who has said, you know, we, we looked at it, we said, there's this much plastic, and then we were able to reduce it by, you know, 10%. And then we took a tag off, and then we were able to reduce it even more. And it was sort of like, what if we just didn't put packaging on it? What if we just did something totally different? You know, what if we just experiment with a whole new way of doing this? And I think both of those we need, we need to incentivize more of the second one, of yeah, that so real this, big one, what if thinking. This idea that actually, of course, reducing negative impacts is good. No one's saying stop doing that. But totally. actually, what are we going to do? What are we going to rethink and do differently and redesign differently 
to never have to deal with the kind of question of what are we reducing. Exactly, exactly. And that's very exciting because I do think there's more of that conversation. Um, but how do we create more space for that and room, room to just try? Great. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us sure. in the Circle Economy Cafe. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So that was it from Carrie Deniston, Seb, from walmart.org. What was your main takeaway from this conversation? I think the thing that I took away most strongly was this sense that Carrie is a passionate and personally motivated individual. And you heard her talk about that really explicitly in that conversation we just had. She talked about recognizing her potential to have an impact, the kind of impact that she wants to have in the world um, by working in an organization like Walmart, at least hoping that she can generate that kind of impact. And the reason that struck me is because I imagine a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in a very similar position. They're trying to find whether they're working in education institutions, policy institutions, businesses, startups, whether they're at university studying uh, a topic relevant to circular economy. They're trying to find their way to have an impact in this space. And I think it's really interesting to to hear a little bit more about their personal stories as well, because usually, right, in some of the conversations that we have here, uh, Seb, we usually hear about what their businesses are doing, but it's also quite interesting to see how they are coming from different backgrounds, but they're all very passionate about this topic and it's bringing them together to work on the circular economy. Um, who are we going to hear from next, Seb? Yep, so next up, we've got Jim Andrew, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at PepsiCo. Um, and what you're going to hear in this conversation is that PepsiCo, whilst kind of associated with a very specific soft drink beverage, is actually a massive food company with really large impacts on agricultural land, for instance. We're, I'm also going to be able to speak to them a bit about Pepsi Positive, their organization's latest initiative. We're going to try and have an honest conversation about some of the challenges and barriers to making all this stuff happen. And we're also going to dig back into what we just talked about and hear what does Jim hope his personal legacy will be? Jim, thanks for joining us. Um, I wonder if actually, first off, you could tell us a, bit, a little bit about you. Like, what's your background? How do you get to become Chief Sustainability Officer at PepsiCo? Sure, happy to. And a real, a real pleasure to be here, Seb. You know, I grew up as a kid spending a lot of time outdoors. I always went camping and my family always did that. So I've always spent a lot of time in the woods, but really I'm a scuba diver and I love to scuba dive. And what really has galvanized some of me from a personal standpoint is that, you know, half the world's coral reefs are already gone and probably another 75% of them are seriously threatened when it comes to global warming. So that's you know, that, that's a real personal call to action. On a professional side, uh, I've been with PepsiCo about five years. I've been chief sustainability officer for a little over a year. And before that, I was uh, ran strategy for the group and also uh, bought our SodaStream business. And that's obviously a real positive uh, sustainability business that we have and very fast growing. That's sort of been my journey. I'm a, I'm a business guy with a real passion for sustainability. And what is the, you know, when you're, you come from that background of really passionate about scuba diving, about nature, what's the appeal then working in a big corporate? Is it impact, for instance? Yeah, oh, it's great. Every, every day I get up and I get to do something positive. And you're exactly right. It, it's about impact. You know, company, big companies do big things well. And working at a company the size of PepsiCo, 
on this agenda able to really have a big impact. And that's that's exciting. You know, it, it gives me a chance to do something that I think can really scale. I mean, we're into over 200 countries, so you, you really do touch, you know, the four corners of the earth, so to speak. And we're recording this in Glasgow during COP26. PepsiCo made a really interesting kind of statement in the lead up to this event around ambitions to be regenerative. What does that mean? Yeah, it, yeah it's one of those words that to us it means to have a positive impact. And what we want to do as a company is to have a positive impact. That's why we launched our uh, program called PepsiCo Positive, which is a real, it's not a sustainability program. It's an end-to-end business transformation that is changing you know, how we make our products, how we grow our products, how we transform, really how we grow and create value um, on an end-to-end basis with sustainability squarely at the center of it. And that's, to us, that's about how do we become positive as a company in really three broad areas, agriculture, positive agriculture, positive value chain, all the things, and then positive choices, both our portfolio and then how do we use our brands to inspire consumers to be aware of and make positive choices. And what I'm hearing you say there is it's not about just doing less bad. It's not like how do we make PepsiCo have less negative impacts. It's about how does PepsiCo become a nature positive company, a people positive company. Yeah, and that's why that's why we call exactly right. That's why we call the program PepsiCo Positive because we want to be a positive force in all the things we do, all the communities that we're in, all the people that we touch. What what ta- I mean, like one of the things that's quite interesting about that as well is that many many of our audience, when they think of PepsiCo, will probably imagine a soft drinks beverage. Sure. What does the actual portfolio look like? What does it mean to be regenerative at PepsiCo? Because um, you know, because actually when we talk about regenerative, we talk about agriculture, we don't necessarily think about soft drinks. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, honestly, before I started PepsiCo, I, pr- I probably thought the same thing. You know, we're a food company. I mean, we're 55, going on 60% food-based uh, as the biggest part of our portfolio and the, and the fastest growing. And so we've got brands like, like Quaker, like Frito-Lay, like Tropicana, like Gatorade. Uh, in addition to, obviously, the name on the door, Pepsi, but that today it's only 11 or 12% of the company. So it's a, it's a very broad-based, very big food and beverage company um, that looks very different than, as you say, most people probably have in their minds. And therefore, agriculture is a critical part of it. We, our agricultural footprint is about 7 million acres a year, which is a, a pretty big number. And again, if you're, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, impact, that's your impact uh, and your opportunity to create change. Right. I mean, we're 70 plus billion dollars, 200 countries, 290,000 associates. So just sort of right there, we've got the opportunity to have an impact at scale. The, the, the opportunity for us is to use that size and that scale to really drive that kind of impact across you know, all those pillars of our PepsiCo positive ambition. That opportunity, of course, is also a challenge. Um, it's very challenging when you're such a large organization. I've, I've obviously thrived pre-circle economy, pre-regenerative ambitions. What are some of the biggest challenges and barriers to accomplishing some of the things that you've talked about? Well, it, it obviously depends on, on the topic, but I would say broadly, it's how do we harness that size and that scale 
across the, the full agenda. And so if you take something like packaging, which obviously is something that we're very aware of our responsibility around, um, recycling is a big piece of what we're trying to do and really trying to use our, our scale to lean in on increasing recycling rates, which is engaging with consumers, getting infrastructure built uh, because that is a partnership with other companies, organizations such as yourself, governments to really get that infrastructure built. And then obviously also having sound policy. And so there, it's, it's really how do we, all of these issues are systems issues. You know? and, and so it's how do we use what we can bring in partnership and collaboration, because we can't do this by ourselves. How do we use our skills and capabilities and size to help drive change in that system? Because that's the only way we're going to solve these issues. These are big issues globally. So your big push on the plastic space is around recycled content, or one of your big pushes on the plastic space. There's obviously also the kind of reuse innovation agenda. The plastic story is an interesting one when I think about the circular economy because Whilst it's you know some of the challenges have been known for a long time, it's also in a relatively short time it's gone from maybe being an issue on the fringes to being something where there's actually quite a lot of industry uh, collaboration around, quite a few actions. What's been kind of your and PepsiCo's experience of that shift? Yeah, you know I I'll work with anybody, uh, peers, competitors, civil society, governments, and I'll work with anybody on these issues that affect all of us, and, and plastics packaging is, is a great one. And you're right, I think there's been a real change. You know, certainly in PepsiCo, we've been active in this area since mid, the mid-2000 aughts, I guess you say, you know, 2005, 2006. Uh, and we're, we, you know, we've been involved with you all from early on. But it's really a question about how do we accelerate? That's, that's the word that's on our minds. And it, it, to us, it's, you, you have to do three things broadly. It's one, it's just reduce. Anything we can do to reduce plastic. Uh, how do we lightweight our bottles? How do we change from metal to aluminum? One of our big brands, Bubbly, we were talking about sparkling water before we started here. Our Bubbly brand of spark, flavored sparkling water is not in any plastic. And it, it's, it's almost a... Uh, a plastic-free native brand. So you know, we're limited about plastic None. from that. Yeah. There is no plastic in it. It's available in cans, it's on fountain, and it's in soda stream, but it's not, uh, no plastic. Uh, so one is reduce. Another is how do we use recycle, and we've talked about that. And the other is how do we reinvent? And so that is about how do we look at different ways like SodaStream, which is you know, probably the, the real icon. It's a really fast-growing business, but it's also something that we're taking not only into over 40 countries and expanding globally, but how do we also take that into away from home, into the workplace? So we've started up a business, SodaStream Professional, which is now, by the end of next year, will be in 10 countries. It's bringing functional beverages. So really, how do we continue to expand that out? So it's really about reduce, recycle, but also reinvent, concentrates, powders, you know, all different ways of delivering, in this case, beverages, but it's across our whole portfolio. And, I mean, so you've mentioned SodaStream, mentioned the targets. Um, obviously, you've signed up to the new plastic company, Global Commitment, where those targets are tracked and measured on an annual basis. Um, you know, th- these things are still quite a small percentage of the overall market, even though the ambitions are increasingly stronger, increasingly more encouraging. What for you is the kind of key enabler of that then 
becoming this, you know, almost the majority of PepsiCo's business. It's really, again, it's how do we bring the whole system along? You know, we and any other company, we're, we, we can move, do a lot ourselves, and we still have more to do, for sure. Um, so it's, it's everything from new approaches to, so for example, you know, one of the big issues in many places is consumer awareness and consumer engagement. So our brands, which are our direct relationship with our consumer, our brands are really leaning in now. So a great example is... Uh, in we are partners with the NFL, the American Football. I know yeah. it's not really football to you, but you know the American Football League, uh, by far the most watched sport in America, and we're leaning in with the Pepsi brand on what's called trash talk, uh, which are prominent celebrities in from football talking to consumers directly about the importance of recycling, what is recycling, what is good recycling, and how do you do it? Why is it important? You know. Our brands are much more front forward on that. Another is, uh, so new approaches, new materials. You know, we're, we announced uh, in our foods portfolio a fully compostable bag, uh, which is now available in store. So it's real, it's commercialized. And we've announced that we'll work with other companies to license that technology at no cost. And it's, you know, that's a biodegradable compostable bag. And then new approach, uh, then new uh, business models. So not only SodaStream, which we talked about, but also we're looking at, you know, all sorts of reuse, refill, and then also for our food business, you know, bulk and other business models. And I think it's going to take all of those from our perspective. We're going to have to do all of those to really move to where we want to get to and, and where I think the world needs. And, I mean, you've mentioned collaboration. We talked a little bit about policy. I wonder if we could just dwell on policy for a minute because it feels like a key enabler in this whole space. What's, from your perspective, what's needed in the policy space to make this more achievable for a company like PepsiCo? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're really about smart policy. There's lots of ways to accomplish certain objectives. Um, what we hope and what we advocate for and what we work with, again, NGOs as well as governments are, what are the kinds of policies, whether it be on recycling infrastructure or a price for carbon or fleet emission standards, what are the policies that will help uh, advance the objective? And then how can those policies be well-designed to really accomplish, with a minimum of friction and leakage, accomplish those objectives? And I think that's where we and, and industry can play a role. Uh, but it's a partnership. As you said, it's collaboration. It's really working together. I think that's how we're going to get the best answers. And my final question to you, Jim, is, I mean, this is, it feels like we're living through a significant moment in time. Maybe everyone who's lived through any moment in time has felt the same way. Um, but... Uh, and, and, you know, again, at this COP, a big theme is making commitments, standing up com- commitments, um, business stepping up. What, but for you personally, you're in, a, you're in a significant role. You have a significant, potentially significant role to play in this. What do you hope your legacy will be when you look back on your time as CSO at Pepsi? Well, I, I hope, and, I, and, you know, this is from our CEO to our executive committee. You know, what I think what we all hope is that when we look back, we took those steps that made a difference, that we were able to change really how the company operates so that it it really transforms all those aspects that I talked about to make the company and its activities better for the planet and better for people. And I think if we do that, we can all look back with, with some pride, but honestly also with some relief 
that that you know maybe we in our our way as PepsiCo exhibiting some leadership again working in partnership with you and many others you know hopefully we all look back and say hey we when that when there was time we actually did the right thing and we had the kind of impact that you know, whenever we're looking back in that rear view mirror and you and I are sitting here some many decades in the future, we say it actually made a difference. That's really what we want, that positive impact point we were talking about earlier. And do you feel positive about that happening? Are you hopeful? I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, I think you I'm, have to be when you're in these spaces. I, I think you have to be. But, you know, I am by nature. But also I think that if we have a vision as to what we want to do and what's important to us and what we want to create, um, we got we're gonna, we can get there. And uh, it's really about how do we mobilize not just you and me, not just even the people here, but the millions and billions of people around the world to make those choices that will, you know, whether they're big or small, will actually help the world move to where it wants to move. But I'm, I'm an optimist for sure. Jim, thanks so much for making the time to speak with us. Seb, great talk to you. Thank you. Well, Seb, I have to say I was very surprised to find out that Pepsi is only about like 11% of like Pepsi goes, uh, like of, of everything that they do. As you said in the beginning, like they are actually an incredibly huge company. Fun fact about me, Lara, or not so fun, I am a recovering cola drink addict. Um, so at one point, I think their business was like 12% when I was drinking like a litre of Pepsi a day. And it's come down 1% since I kicked it, that habit. I've seen that happen in Seb, so I definitely believe that that's the case. Um, I, I've seen during these two conversations, they have very ambitious targets in a way. And they focus a lot on things they want to achieve, let's say in 2030, 2040, which seems like a long time compared to the kind of like you know, urgent situation or the uh, things we need, we need to deal with in a short period of time. Will these things be translated into short-term action? I, I, I'm kind of, I have these thoughts on my mind at the moment. What do you think, Seb? You're such a cynic, Lara, aren't <gasps> you? And I, and I really empathise with that. It's understandable and, um, you know, I can't answer that question in the affirmative or the negative. I think one, one part, of, well, a couple of reflections on that. One, language is really important and I do think there is a significance to the number of organisations talking about their desire to do more good and to be a, have a positive influence on the environment, a positive influence in regenerating nature, as opposed to only trying to sustain themselves. And I do think there's less opportunity to hide from failures to achieve those commitments than there might have been with uh, commitments that were more about doing less bad. Um, but the second reflection is, yes, like there's this, there's this momentum behind this decade of action on climate, for instance. And Putting out public commitments and tracking those commitments publicly is a really important stepping stone to driving action. But the circular economy is a framework for designing and design turns ambition to action. And that's the story I expect us to be tracking in spaces like this podcast over the next five years. And speaking about that, what are we going to be covering next week, Seb? So um, in some ways, we're continuing the theme, at least in terms of industry, focus. Uh, next week, I'm in conversation with B. Perez, who's the first chief sustainability officer of Coca-Cola. And um, our conversation will be somewhat more focused on plastics as an area of focus for that organisation. 
We've got another really interesting personal story um, with B as the first Chief Sustainability Officer. There's also a really interesting example contained within there where they've had tremendous success with this universal bottle in Latin America across their beverages. It's now a really significant percentage, I'll save the percentage for next week, really significant percentage of their business in that region. Well, there you go. That's an appetizer for what we have uh, next week in this podcast. Um, as a reminder, we would like to let you know that this podcast is hosted by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we do three main things, right, Seb? Develop and promote the idea of a circular economy, engage key stakeholders to make it happen, much like some of the conversations that we've shared here, and mobilize system solutions at scale. Exactly, Seb. And we would like to thank our audience for listening in to this podcast. I would like to thank you as well, Seb, to host because you've been hosting these podcasts with me and we would like to just let you know that if you've enjoyed it please like share this podcast with your network and subscribe so that you get one of these each week in 2022 i would like to thank you once again and Seb, any final words for our audience no thank you very much lara and do remember that like share and subscribe helps you out because it means you get amazing circular economy content every single week but it also helps us out too